This is Archive Atlanta, episode 74, Streetcars. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Is it Friday? Because... I'm going to be perfectly honest, I don't always know what day of the week it is at this point. I just hope that everyone listening is hanging in there and is healthy um, and is trying to make the best of the situation. I am really excited about this week's episode from the men who made the streetcars happen, the stories of corruption, monopolies, um, a bitter feud, a boycott, a labor strike. There is a lot to cover in the history of Atlanta streetcars, so get ready. Although early streetcars existed in northern cities, the South was predominantly rural and agrarian. Even big cities down here didn't really have the population numbers to support a public transport system. I mean, Atlanta in 1860 only had like 10,000 people. But that would all change after the Civil War. In 1866, the Atlanta Street Railroad Company charter was approved by the Georgia General Assembly. It's led by George Hillier, attorney, judge, and later mayor, John Westmoreland, founder of the Atlanta Medical College, and J.J. Thrasher, one of our earliest settlers. Fun fact, Atlanta was informally called Thrashersville before becoming a city. This was one year after the Battle of Atlanta, um, and zero roads are paved, and, you know, we're really just in the midst of rebuilding. A month after this company formed, city limits expanded to one and a half miles and encompassed more neighborhoods into their boundaries. All of these new City of Atlanta residents would need ways to travel to and from work. The city authorizes the construction of street railways on Peachtree, Whitehall, Broad, Marietta, and Decatur Streets only. It also attached a $5 annual tax per car and strict paving requirements. It's kind of comical, actually. The city was like, eh, you know, if you're going to run a streetcar, can you pave the roads for us? Flagstones had to cover the area from the sidewalk to the edge of the streetcar, and then they had to pave a certain distance on each side of the trolley track. All of this was just too costly, and the group did nothing. The whole idea sat on the shelf for three years. By 1896, city council conceded, and they removed the paving requirement, um, and they allowed the company to lay track on any street they wanted, They set the fares at 10 cents and 20 cents, and they decided no taxes for 50 years. It still takes two more years for anything to really happen, and it happens when two men acquire the charter and franchise it. Richard Peters and George Washington Adair are the forefathers of Atlanta's mass transit. Together, they would run the Atlanta Street Railway Company, Peters as president and Adair as secretary-treasurer. The very first streetcar line to be built is the West End Line, opened in 1871. Cast iron single tracks started on Whitehall Street, which is today's like underground Atlanta, and ran through Mitchell Street, then to Forsyth, and then ended on Peter Street, which is today kind of near Spelman College. Not ironically, the route ran past both Peter's and Adair's houses, because of course they did. This is the story of every streetcar in every city in America. The men that built these tracks usually built them to go to places they owned, but we'll get into that soon enough. Their cars traveled five miles an hour, carried about 16 to 20 people per car, and they charged five cents per passenger. Although horses were initially used, they found out that red-tailed Mexican mules were way more durable and could work six days in a row with only one day of rest. It took seven mules to pull each car. The lines on Marietta, Decatur, and Petrie Streets were all finalized by 1872. In the following two years, two new lines would be added, the McDonough Street Line and the Taylor Hill Line. 
Taylor Hill went from Forsyth and Marietta Streets over to Haynes and Hunter Streets, which today is the exact site of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It's so funny to hear this described as the western part of the city, but that really gives you an idea of how small Atlanta's boundaries were at the time, and then kind of understanding that, you know, to go from Forsyth Street to the stadium today, you know, takes us a minute in our car, but this was a very far distance to travel um, before the times of public transportation. Now that Taylor Hill line was unprofitable um, and it was closed within the year. In 1874, the Peachtree Street line extended its stop from Pine Street all the way up to Ponce de Avenue. I talked about this a little bit in the Pond City Market episode, but at this point, the area is a popular Victorian nature resort and Atlantans loved going to visit. The actual Ponce de Leon Avenue didn't exist yet, but the Atlanta Street Railway Company owns a 30-foot right-of-way that they would use to lead visitors to the springs. When extending the line, the issue of getting from Petrie Street to the springs was a difficult one because, turns out, there's a creek running through the area right around current-day Myrtle and Argon. So the company constructs a 270-foot trestle bridge over this ravine to get people there. And today, this is all filled in. It's right around the where Mary Max is now, and it's just kind of blows your mind to think that before this was a huge ravine. In 1878, Adair exits the streetcar business and he sold his shares to Richard Peters and then he and his son Edward run the company together. But Adair still has his hand in the game, so to speak. In 1884, the three of them form the Union Street Railroad Company, which was pretty much just like a shell corporation that was poised and ready to buy other failing streetcar lines throughout the city. Just because I've only focused on one company does not mean that there were not other players in the trolley business. Quite the opposite. Over a few decades, more than a dozen corporations were granted charters by the city. Some never made it past their incorporation paperwork, and some did indeed lay track in Atlanta. The West End and Atlanta Street Railroad Company was chartered in 1872, but it did not operate until 1883. And it was created by the men that held stock in Westview Cemetery. And the line went out to Westview Cemetery. So using trolleys for funeral processions was actually really popular. Um, But it turns out that the funerals at Atlanta's newest cemetery couldn't really keep this line profitable. They sold the line to Adair and Peters Union Street Railroad. The Gate City Railroad Company also incorporated in the 1870s, but it did not build until 1884. Its incorporators were Laurent de Give, who owned the first opera house in Atlanta. I probably said that wrong. Um, And Samuel Inman, wealthy cotton broker and Inman Park namesake, among others. Their line went from Wall Street out to Angier Springs and then later Ponce de Leon Springs. Three years later, they were also in financial distress and sold to Union. Metropolitan Street Railroad Company began operating in 1882, and L.P. Grant was one of the main men. This makes sense because both lines started at Prior Street, went in different directions, and ended in Grant Park. So this was one of the first companies to use steam engines, and residents along the route would complain about their ruined parlor curtains from all the smoke and soot. It also traveled 20 miles an hour, which was way ahead of the 5 mile an hour uh, mule-drawn trolley speed. This venture, though, also proved unprofitable, and it was sold at auction. It would be the Atlanta and Edgewood Street Railroad Company that completely changed the game. Joel Hurt shares his episode with Richard Peters, but he came to Atlanta as a railroad engineer. He chartered the streetcar company in 1886, and three years later brought the city its first electrified trolley line. Just happened to connect his brand new planned suburb, Inman Park, with the downtown business district. To do this, he essentially creates the Edgewood Avenue that we know today. 
what is now the capital of the bar and lounge scene, was once all residential. Hurt acquires 62 acres over about three and a quarter miles and demolishes everything. And then he lays some track. On August 22nd, 1889, the first electrified streetcar ride took place. Passengers gathered at the corner of Edgewood and Pryor, which is today kind of the corner of uh, Woodruff Park. And at 5.15 p.m., they boarded the streetcar to Inman Park. They were delighted by the lighted cars for their 15-minute journey home. This was crazy new technology, and only a few cities in the country had it. In the South, it was only Montgomery, Alabama that had just gotten their electric trolley in the same year. The second electric streetcar line came from Fulton County Street Railroad Company in the same year as Hertz. It was a larger company than Joel Hertz, and it was incorporated by James English of Chattahoochee Brick fame and William Lucky. Their route was called Nine Mile Circle, and it started at Broad and Marietta Streets, and then it went out to the future Virginia Highland neighborhood and then looped back around. The fare was five cents, and it was later considered to be kind of the, the pleasure car. So it was scenic, um, it took people out to Ponceleon Park, but then it also, of course, wanted to sell prospective property um, in the Highlands and in the surrounding neighborhoods. In 1891, Joel Hurt changed the game once again, and he took six railway companies that I just talked about, plus six others that existed in name only, and he created the Atlanta Consolidated Street Railway Company. All of the lines were consolidated. Um, He took some out of service that weren't really profitable, and the focus was to electrify what had not been yet. By 1894, we have 54 electrified miles and only 10 that were not. The only remaining mule-drawn line was down Wheat Street, which is today's Auburn Avenue, and I think the one that went out to the Orphan's Home. By 1894, Atlanta had the second largest streetcar system in the Southeast. Hurt was named president of the American Street Railway Association, and that organization decided to hold its first convention ever in the South right here in Atlanta. There were two streetcar companies that remained independent and did not merge. Collins Park and Beltline Railroad Company and the Atlanta Traction Company. Together, these two had about 25 miles of track that serviced the west and southwest parts of the city. And maybe you're wondering, where did all this electricity come from? The earliest iteration of Georgia Power did exist at the time. Then it was called Georgia Electric Light Company, and it was run by Henry Atkinson. But Hurt had his own power plants, um, but he did use a small amount from Atkinson. Atkinson was originally from Massachusetts, and he had come to Atlanta and bought controlling stock in Georgia Electric, and guess what else he controls? The Atlanta Traction Company, the trolley company that did not incorporate. Hurt is really streetcar king, but this period is not without drama. During the Cotton States Exposition in 1895, there was no way to get visitors to Piedmont Park, so Joel Hurt constructs a line, but also raises the fare from 5 to 10 cents. The organizers were not happy. In February of 1896, the residents of Capitol Avenue and Auburn Avenue woke up to find entire blocks of streetcar tracks gone. Like, ripped up, non-existent. And it turns out the city was kind of once again forcing the trolley company to pave the roads, which would have cost Atlanta Consolidated about 20 years of profit. Hurt ordered crews to remove the track in the cover of darkness, and the only reason they didn't remove more was that the noise woke up a resident who called the police and they ordered them to stop. This whole thing was just a huge drama. Um, It goes to court. Judge Candler actually orders the reinstatement of the tracks within a two-week period. 
The following year, the city tries to set the passenger fare at five cents and Consolidated fights it in court and wins. And at this point, Hurt resigns from the board and is replaced by his brother-in-law, Ernest Woodruff. By 1899, Joel Hurt and Henry Atkinson are in a public feud, which has been coined the Second Battle of Atlanta, or my personal favorite, War of the Watts. What had begun as talks of a merger really became the struggle of each man to command the electricity and transportation of the city. And honestly, this whole thing could be its own episode, and maybe I'll talk about it when I do a Georgia Power episode, but at the end of it all, Joel Hurt exits the streetcar business, and in 1901, he sells his controlling stock to Henry Atkinson, and the new Georgia Railway and Electric Company is born. Segregation and civil rights are important parts of streetcar history. In 1891, the state of Georgia passed its first streetcar segregation law, which was fairly vague. Um, It just kind of said enforce, quote unquote, as much as possible. Street railway companies didn't want this law because it limited their profit margin. Um, But then at times, to keep with public opinion, they really stood behind segregation going against their own business interests. In response to the enforcement of this new law, Black Atlantans staged a trolley boycott that lasted an entire year. Instead of riding, they walked, they used private carriages, or they rode along with draymen or hackmen. And a hackman is the Victorian term for a carriage driver, and a drayman was someone who drove a cart with fixed size, usually actually carrying beer kegs. Hackmen and draymen were the leading professions for Black men at this time. So this is one of Atlanta's earliest civil rights battles. Um, It's just not really featured in history because, you know, we have Montgomery bus boycott that happened in the 50s, but it really gives you some context to that. There was also a lot of cities, I think Savannah and Nashville, where African-Americans attempted to form their own streetcar companies, but none of them got off the ground. From 1895 through 1930, streetcar strikes affected almost every major city in the country. Detroit, Brooklyn, Cleveland, St. Louis, Pensacola, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Denver, just to name a few. Many involved people wounded, dying, and even the National Guard. And these strikes happened because of a few things. Routes and cars were spread out and difficult to protect. And so they also went through working class neighborhoods where people are generally sympathetic to union causes. It's also really easy to sabotage overhead lines. And so they made them an attractive target for unions like the Amalgamated Street Railway Employees of America. Also at this time in history, you see a huge influx of immigrants in northern cities like New York, um, Chicago. And so anti-foreign sentiment was huge. But what I found really fascinating is that in a place like Atlanta and the South in general that did not have waves of foreign immigration, the term foreigner was bestowed upon to northerners or Yankees. So Henry Atkinson was northern. But even worse, he ran his companies with northern money and northern banks. The Georgia Railway and Electric Power Company prided themselves on only hiring motormen or conductors that were white and born in America, as they were less likely to be part of a union. A carman was the title given to those who operated or drove the streetcar. And so their most common complaints were um, split shifts and then lack of being able to join a union. The company defends itself by explaining that it's really hard to guarantee hours of shifts because their business model literally depends on rider and how many people need or choose to ride the streetcar. In 1916, employees in Atlanta had enough. They believed they were getting paid way less than the carmen in other cities, and they demanded a 10% increase in salary. On Saturday, September 30th, carmen abandoned their cars at precisely 6 o'clock in the heart of downtown Atlanta. 
the time when everybody would be leaving work and looking to get on the trolley. The streetcar company had entire squads ready to mobilize in situations like this, and so within hours, 300 men ran to the empty cars and resumed operations. The strike did not go smoothly. Working-class Atlantans who were pro-union assisted in taking streetcars out of commission, and then the operators that had been hired, um, or who chose not to strike, were harassed and sometimes beaten. Cars were dynamited, tracks were greased, and rocks were thrown. The Amalgamated Street Railway Employees of America vehemently denied any responsibility for these outrageous actions. Uh, The Georgia Railway claimed that only 65 out of 1,000 carmen walked out, and so they published a letter in the newspaper that was supposedly signed by 760 carmen who did not strike. However, the union claimed that they had 400 men strong. At the end of the day, historians have studied this and put the accurate number of strikers around 450 operators. On October 3rd, demands were reiterated. Um, They wanted a change to their 13 to 16 hour workdays, and they wanted an increase from their current 17 to 25 cents per hour. And they also want to be able to join a union and not have to support company-backed political candidates. Downtown businessmen are essentially freaking out over the strike and its impact on their business. Usually pro-union mayor James Woodward would not allow the strikers to address in public, um, and then meetings that had been held in some Methodist churches were quashed by Bishop Warren Candler, brother of Asa Candler, who happened to be one of the largest stockholders in the streetcar company. Because the streetcar company had Boston money, again through Atkinson, it was labeled as foreign by the strikers. The strike went well into the first month of 1917. Um, the pay was raised a few cents, but that was it. The company refused to hire workers that striked. But by 1918, we are dealing with the Spanish flu, the start of World War I, um, national political issues. And so the streetcar company kind of backs down a little bit. They agree not to coerce any employees who want to join a union. The following year, they would have another small strike, but eventually the strikers um, are rehired and wages go up a tiny bit more. Atlanta had another strike in 1950 that lasted for seven months, um, following a year when trolleys had killed five Atlantans and Margaret Mitchell had been killed by an off-duty taxi. The city council passed an ordinance that all streetcar and taxi drivers apply for a permit. So the union got involved, um, the operators went on strike again, and then the police chief ends up suspending all officer vacations and puts them on every single Atlanta intersection to control traffic. The mayor also temporarily allows jitneys to operate in the city, um, and the union and ends up voting to allow the permit process. But after all this, Georgia Power, um, which is, you know, the current name of the streetcar operator, sees this as an exit and they get out of the transit business. Before we end today's episode, I want to talk about what is still tangible from the streetcar history because it's a lot more than you think. When streetcars faded out of use, U.S. cities began selling the actual cars globally. Facilities were either demolished or readapted for other uses. So many of Atlanta's neighborhoods exist solely because of streetcars. Inman Park, Capitol View, the beginnings of East Atlanta, Adair Park, Virginia Highland, and Kirkwood. You have structures like the Trolley Barn in Inman Park, which was built in 1889 and is now an events facility. In West Midtown, you have a 1904 car barn um, that's on Joseph E. Lowry. There's a beautiful trolley substation on the former Stewart Avenue at the kind of the top edge of Pittsburgh. There are two other substations near Emory and on Spring Street. I could go on for another 30 minutes, but instead I'm going to link 
to a huge 300-page survey um, that was done. They cataloged all the remains of our streetcar history. So I'm talking retaining walls and curb cutouts and stuff that you might be passing every day and have no idea. As the only thing to do in Atlanta right now is take a walk, maybe print some of this out and go on a scavenger hunt. Lastly, there are old streetcar tracks under so many roads that we travel every day. If you catch a crew doing some deep level road work in Atlanta, run over from a safe distance, see if you can spy the rails. If you want to go the safer route, though, at the corner of Petrie Street and Ponce de Leon Avenue, um, when they were constructing this little plaza in 2013, historic tracks were discovered and they created like a shadow box, kind of a plexiglass over the top. So the tracks are in the original location. And you can get a small sense of that streetcar turning right onto Ponce, headed possibly to a baseball game. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta streetcar history. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review. It helps more people find the podcast and spread these stories of our wonderful city. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.